Now when we continue on our reading about the history of the church that God determined he wanted us to know, I just want to say this, when we read this, it's so important, and what's relevant is so important to today is, as you know, Mike's been pointing out, but the Lord points it out in here, we sometimes might think that some parts of the Bible aren't as relative or aren't as important. God chose every word. And one thing we can see is God's sovereign hand working through it all. Amen. We need to keep that in mind still today. He's working the same today. Amen. Anyway, let us start reading Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. Now when Festus was coming to the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him, and desired favor against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me, and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down into Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come down, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about, and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Well, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem, and there be judge of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they, these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Let us pray. O oh, Father, again, Lord, as we're gathered together this morning, we recognize and honor and bless you and give you much praise. For we know you are the one true living God. You are the Almighty. You are the creator of all that exists, Lord. And you are sovereign over all your creation. Father, pray now that as, as you teach us in your word, and as you promise us in your word, Lord, that as your word goes out today, that it would have your desired effect amongst your people, Lord. Lord, that it would build up your people, Lord, and that you would be glorified. We ask your blessing upon this service now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, so good to be gathered together this morning, have our Bibles in our hands. Again, this morning in uh, Sunday, or in Bible study, reminded again, aren't we, brethren, how blessed we are to live in an era where we actually have all 66 books together. Think of it, it wasn't very long ago. Most people couldn't even read. I mean, it, it, it's amazing when you consider history and the era that we live in and how blessed we are this morning. We open our Bibles, God's inspired word, and we have every word, as Howard just said. Every word is there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. It's not filling in space whatsoever. The Holy Spirit of God led these men 
and guided them to put these very words in here. Now, this morning, as we again take up the words of God in our Bibles together, we, are, we have arrived at chapter 25. We'll be in the, if you will, the beginning verses of chapter 25, but we remember that chapter 24 ended with a change in the governorship. It went from Felix, the governor, to Festus, who is now the governor. And this is where we, again, take it up, God's inspired history, as we see how God, again, is building the church, and he's using Paul, and he's preserving Paul as he is on his way to Rome. In fact, I like what Josephus wrote about Festus. He said, his administration was much better than that of Felix. He governed well, despite all the problems that Felix had left him. Now, you remember, we looked at Felix last week, and he is a, 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 just a great progenerator of what? Of procrastination. He really was. He could make a decision if his life depended on him. And it's an amazing thing. And now, again, we, we're, we've entered in really to the last years of Paul's life. You remember that. He has been a prisoner now the whole time till the end of, of 2 Timothy. He's a prisoner held, if you will. First in Jerusalem, we saw that. He was a prisoner there. Here in Caesarea, he's a prisoner. And by the grace of God and by the providence of God, we will soon see, amen, that he is a prisoner even when he goes to Rome. And he is until God's appointed time for him to be executed, which happens when he's in Rome, obviously there. Now, Howard brought up a good point this morning, didn't realize it, but in the sermon now, we have seen in the book of Acts, we have heard, we have heard all of the unholy, all of the untrue accusations that are, that's being made against Paul, the unfounded accusations. Anybody remember? Three times so far. And three times we've heard Paul's defense. Well, as we enter into our text this morning, we're going ha- to hear for the fourth time Paul's defense, the accusations that are brought against Paul, and then his defense. And the Holy Spirit isn't done there. When we get into chapter 26 for the fifth time, brother, he will indeed have Luke record this glorious thing. Now, listen, I always ask people, how many times does God have to say something before he's trying to drive a point home? Amen. There's a, an important reason why God would not once, not twice, not three times, but five times have us read over, have us consider this glorious portion of Scripture in this era of time in history. It's quite stunning when you think about that because, again, it seems that, again, the story or the narrative is being retold again. This one's a little bit shorter. There's some things that uh, aren't brought out in this particular interrogation, but it is still the same thing, again, for the fourth time. In fact, we see so many similarities that it is told. Look at verses 1 through 3 there this morning as we get started in our text. The Bible says, Now when Festus was come into the providence, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him, and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying in wait to what? To kill him. Well, brethren, one of the things that we see here again is that these Jewish leaders learned well from the previous two years earlier. Remember what happened? There was 40 men who conspired to kill Paul, and they were coming up with the same thing. Hey, why don't you have Paul come to Jerusalem, and they were going to lay in wait, just like these men. It's a stunning thing to consider how evil these men really have become. But again, we see this, brethren, as we look at this text, again, lying in wait to kill Paul. Now listen, these religious hypocrites, brethren, lie to Festus. They've learned well from the 40 conspirators that, that they tacitly endorsed when they were going to conspire to kill Paul with this conspiracy. 
They lied, to, they lied to Festus. They have murder in their hearts. And most assuredly, brethren, they have an ungodly conspiracy flowing through their veins. Now think about this for a moment. They've got murder in their heart. This conspiracy is flowing through their veins. And more than that, brethren, they have a hatred in their mind for Paul, for the man whom God has sent to preach the gospel unto them. In other words, what you see is they are completely cocooned, if you will. They are completely enveloped in and by their father, the lying devil himself. It is really stu a stunning thing when you think about that for just a moment. I like what one preacher said. These were religious men, religious leaders. Their actions show the danger of religion that is not in true relation with God. And again, brethren, this is so important. You can be so religious in fighting against God. Think of that. And this is what we're seeing again as the story, the narrative, if you will, is retold again. These religious men are actually fighting against God. It's a stunning thing. And he continues, if your religion makes you a liar and a murderer, there's something wrong with your religion. Amen. Think about how that could be expanded out huh, into the Muslims, some of these groups. But think about that for a moment. These religious men think they're following God. And in all reality, they are nothing but a heart-filled murderers who are, in fact, fighting against God himself. It's a stunning thing to consider. Religion, as the Bible defines it, there's a good religion in Scripture. James talks about that, right? There's a biblical religion. This is not biblical religion. Again, a religion that makes you a liar and a murderer, there's a problem with your religion. Amen. And this is, again, what we see. Religiosity is deadly. It's very dangerous to people's souls. And this, again, is what is being brought out in our text. Now look at verses 4 and 5 there. Look what happens. They were laying in wait again. They took good lessons. They understood and watched what the 40 conspirators did. They themselves now are coming up with the same kind of ploy. It's a, it's a stunning thing. Look at verse 4 there, if you would. Sorry I'm spitting all over this morning, but I got cough drops in my pie. I've, I've had a cold for several days, so if spit flies out and hits Brother Elmer out there, I apologize. Look at verse 4. But Festus answered, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them, therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. Well, brethren, what is one of the themes that we've seen in all of these trials, in all of the things that, that, that God is doing here? Again, we again see the kind providential hand of God in the life of Paul. They want him to travel so that they can kill him on the way. And old Festus, the tool of God, just says, uh, no, no, I'll tell you what. I'm traveling down there. You'll travel with me. Amen? That's what's going to happen. So, again, we see the providential decision that he makes. It, again, spared Paul's life. Because you think as we get towards the end, as we get towards the end of the text, there's faith involved here. There's something that Paul is continually reminded of, and that is that promise, that vision that the Lord Jesus gave him. You will go, indeed, to Rome and preach. And so he is being cared for so graciously and so kindly by the providence of God's hand. And again, we see this here in the text. It's just, again, I've heard preachers say, there's no doctrine in these verses, 20, chapter 24 and 25. There's doctrine everywhere. And I've heard it from men who I hold in high esteem. There's no, I mean, I've got a third grade education and I see doctrine here. I see good teaching. And what does that do for the saints? It edifies the saints when you understand that God is providential, working everything for your good. That's good, sound teaching and doctrine. 
for the Christian to trust in what God is doing in every second, every minute, every day of your life. That for me, I rest easy at night, brethren. I sit in my, well, do we call that my easy chair? I sit in my easy chair and think of all the blessings of God in my day, and I think of how God providentially worked everything to his good. Amen? This is something we must never. So for men to say, men that I, and I hold in high esteem, there's nothing here. Oh, yes, there's something here. In fact, it's heading towards another opportunity for Paul to preach before another king the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, again, we see this glorious thing unfolding. Again, as I said, we see the kind providence of God in Paul's life in verses 4 and 5 by a decision that is made by a Gentile uh, governor, one who could care less about religion, one who could care less about Christ, one who could care less. And yet here we are again seeing in this glorious text the providential hand of God sparing Paul's life. It really is quite an amazing thing. In fact, if you want to accuse this man, you're coming here. We're going down to Jerusalem. If you want to accuse him, and that's an important word that we're going to look at here this morning for just a moment, this word accuse that's in our text, you come down hither, thither, and if you're going to accuse him, is an age-old doctrinal demonic doctrine. Think of this for a moment, brethren. Think of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to look at that, this word Accused. You know what the word accused there means? It means to vote against. And you remember when we went through the Gospel of Mark. How many times did the Jewish leaders accuse Christ of this and accuse him of that? In fact, when you look in the New Testament in the Gospels, there's only one time where that accused doesn't mean to vote against Christ. It's a stunning thing. And here they are standing there again, these Jewish leaders accusing Paul, voting against not only Christ, but against his people which is quite a stunning thing. And brethren, what's the source of all of this? What's the source of it? Go to Psalm 109. Go to Job, I mean chapter 1. You see it over and over again. It is who? The accuser of the brethren. And this is the source of it all. This is where Paul is standing. He sees here this accusation. Look here at Luke chapter 23. Again, just by way of remembrance here. And again, keeping in mind that this happened over and over and over again. I was thinking about something. In fact, I may have said it to Wendy, uh, maybe this week, <coughs> excuse me, that think of this for a moment, brethren. If the Lord Jesus would say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for who? Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of the depth of what he is saying there. Here is God himself preaching to these religious Jews, and they are rejecting him out of hand. They keep rejecting him over and over again. In fact, they're not only rejecting him, we're going to see here again, they are voting against him to have him murdered. It's the same thing here. It's the same thing. Their father is these men's father. They are, what did we, remember we said it last week, what does Jesus say concerning Satan himself? He is a liar, a murderer, and what? He's a liar. And this is what we see again. Brethren, there's doctrine here. There's all kinds of things here that we can learn concerning how we as Christians ought to act. Look at Luke chapter 23. Look at verses 1 through 4. Again, just by way of remembrance, to vote against. And again, every time, and it's several times in the Gospels over and over again, except one time. This word is to vote against. Look here, if you would. Verse, chapter 23, look at verse number 1. 
And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to what? Accuse him. You see, there is, there's that word. It's the exact same word. This is what they're doing. They're voting against Christ publicly. We found this fellow perverting the nation, forgiving, uh, for, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Yes, he is. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered them and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and unto the people, I find no fault with this man. Again, publicly, they're voting against their Savior. Think of this, brethren. The, God, the, the Lord, the Father himself sends his son to regroup, to, uh, if you will, to save his people from their sins. And here they are continually voting against him. They don't just stop there. Look at verse number 10 of the same chapter. Look there, if you would, Luke chapter 23. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. There it is again. Voted against Christ. Voted against the Savior, whom Matthew said he has come to save his people from their sins. Not only there, look at verse 14 of, Matthew, of Luke chapter 23. Look at verse 14. Said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me, one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, and have found no fault with this man, touching those things whereof you, ye accuse him of. Here again, again, we have really those who are supposed to be the people of God, voting against God himself and voting against his people and against the Savior. Think of that for a moment. Here we have the same situation. It's no different. Brother, look, do you see this? There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that Satan's going to do that's going to trick you and I. We've got it right before us all, amen? We have it right here. These are his tactics. This is the kind of thing that he does to the people of God. He tries to, he tries to get them through uh, temptations, he gets them through persecution, he does all manner of things, but the source is the same. It all comes from their father, the accuser. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 12, again, just one more verse, there's many, but look at here, the last book in the Bible, look at here what we see, again, Revelation chapter 12, look at verse number 7. Again, this is the source. He is the fountainhead. He's the wellhead. He's the spring of these unholy, ungodly accusations. Voting against his preacher. Voting against God. That is an active thing, brethren. That is a verb. That's an action verb for those of us who are in English and understand it. It is an action that they are actually doing. Think of that for a moment. I, I, I don't think we really can grasp what's happening. Look at verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought at his, with his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there a place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And he was cast down into the earth with his angels are cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ. For the accuser of what? Of our brethren. Amen. There he is. That's the source. That's the wellhead. This is where this is coming from. Satan simply using his tools. What do we call that? What do communists call these people that, you know, they ride in the streets until they get control and then those people are no longer, they're the first ones to go. This is a funny thing. It's an amazing thing, brethren, to behold how they operate. Burning down cities, doing these unholy things in the streets. Who do you think is the first one when the communists take control? Who's going to go first? Them. The useful what? Idiots. This is what we have. Satan is using these useful idiots to accuse, to vote against God's preacher, 
and against his Messiah. It is truly a stunning thing when you consider that. Now look back there, if you would, at Acts 25. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. We're kind of zooming along here. Again, as we said, the Holy Ghost has put this in here five times, and uh, we are going to read it, we're going to study it, we're going to read it and study it together five times. That's what we're going to do, and, uh, and not jump over things too fast. Look there, if you would, verse 6, 7, and 8. And we had tarried among them more than ten days. He went down onto Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about him and laid many grievous, uh, many in grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Again, he's simply reciting what we already know. But verse 8, Well, he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended anything at all. And again, as we see here, the Bible tells us, Luke says that after more than 10 days, Festus returns to Caesarea, or Caesarea, however you want to pronounce it, and convenes court. It's time to have court again. These Jews here, they come again, bringing accusations against God's preacher. So we've got to convene another court, and this is what Festus does. And the keystone cops, that's, that's something I was sitting here when I was working on this sermon. Just think of this, brothers, for a moment. I used it against the Jews when they were coming against Jesus, too. It's like the Keystone cops. Here they show up again. They have no proof, no nothing. And think about this, brother. Do you remember how long this has been? This wasn't yesterday. This wasn't like they had one or two days to come up with these charges. Two years. They've had two years to stew, as I wrote in my note. These Keystone cops, they looked, they looked under every rock. They looked behind every door. They were looking behind everything. And in two years, they still could not bring founded charges against Paul. Think of that for a moment. You can see them. Got their little hats on, roaming around there, looking for some kind of a charge that will stick. And in reality, God is just using them as useful fools. It's a stunning thing to consider. These accusations remain unchanged for two years, groundless, unfounded, unsubstantiated, and unproven, as he just said. You can't even prove them. In fact, as I said, you've looked under every rock in every cave in Jerusalem, and you can't find anything that's going to stick because they are indeed unfounded. In fact, look at verse 8. He uses language that he used when he used before Felix. Remember, we looked at this, but I want to bring it to your mind again. Look at verse number 8. He uses that word, neither, a whole bunch of times. Well, he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. And you remember, neither against all of these things, that word neither, again, let me just remind us. Because he did it over, if you will, over in chapter 24 as well, in verses, you know, you see there verse 12 and 13. Neither, 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 neither. Neither literally means nor this, nor that. Not this one or that one. It's an amazing thing, again, by way of remembrance. Just, again, the keystone cops. Not, not one or the other. In fact, none of them. He again stands up and says, neither of these, none of these, not this one, not that one. And by the way, you keystone cops are looking. I mean, just think of how amazing this looks. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. Because you just see, again, God foiling their plan as they, again, 
are looking under every rock, in every crevice, in every hole, in every cave, trying to find these accusations that'll stick. It's, it's really quite amusing. You start to be amused by it, but yet it's such a serious thing because they are indeed trying to kill Paul, which, again, is quite amazing. In fact, again, one pastor said this. In court, Paul faced, again, a dish of lies and half-truths, served up with venom and spite. Think of this for a moment. And seasoned with the deadly poison of a charge of insurrection and high treason, which would bring death immediately, as we know, Pax Romana. We, Brother Dean talked about it again. When you disturb the peace of Rome, you are going to be murdered and killed on the spot. Because, again, they're not going to allow that to happen. Amen. That was an amazing thing to consider, how they controlled his Brother Dean. Think of the vast, the vastness of their of their, of their world, if you will. Think of that for a moment. Just And we've looked at this and seen this. Just a stunning thing to behold, if you will. Now, it's an amazing thing because in verses 9 and 10, Paul says an amazing thing to us. And I want you to consider this for a moment. Look there if you would. But Festus, and we'll come back to this, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. Think of this for a moment, what he's saying of these things before me. Now again, brethren, our religious affections are drawn to the stunning reality. (laughs) Think of this for a moment. That Paul is safer. Think of this for a moment. That Paul is safer in the hands of a Gentile Roman government. Paul says, uh, I'm, no, I'm standing before Caesar. I'm not going with those Jews over there. I'm not going down to Jerusalem to sit in front of their court, in front of their little, well, we think, you know, the Keystone cops are bad. Can you imagine the court? We've got, what, Barney and everybody else at the courtroom there? Paul says, no, I'm safer, and I'm going to stay here in the grips of the Roman Gentile government. Think of that for a moment when you consider that. He's safer in their hands than the hands of those who claim, listen, brethren, again, to be the children of God. Think of that statement for a moment. How can a believer be safer in the hands of a Gentile government who doesn't even believe in Christ, believe in any of this stuff? They could literally care less. Paul says, nope, I am going to stay here in Caesar's judgment seat. In fact, he goes one farther. Look there if you would. He says, I'm standing here before Caesar's judgment seat. But he takes it even a little farther. Look at verse 11. I'm standing before Caesar's judgment seat. And then what does he do? I appeal to who? I appeal to Caesar, in fact. Stunning thing, brother. Now, you do realize who Caesar is at this time. Think of this for a moment. I want you guys to get a hold of what Paul said. Now, we understand that at this time, Nero wasn't near as evil as he was going to be in a few years. He appealed to go stand before Nero rather than be in the hands of these unholy Jews who were going to kill him. Think of that for a moment. I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to him. I'm going to Nero, who we know just a few years later is burning Christians as lampposts. Think of that for a moment. Consider that. How unholy and ungodly this really is. (coughs) Imagine if Graham 
came to us and said, I feel safer, you know, over there at the over there at some crazy, charismatic, unbelieving church than I do here in our church. Think of that. That's what he's saying. Amazing, isn't it? Think of that. Stunning thing to consider. Those who claim to be the children of God, he would rather be with some unbelieving Gentiles who could care less about Christ or their Jewish law. That's a, that's a stunning thing to consider when you think about this. May we never be that way, brethren. May we never be. In fact, Festus, as the governor under Nero, had a solemn duty to protect Paul. Think of this. You know, we looked at this earlier. Paul's citizenship. Who is he a citizen of? Rome. Amen. So therefore, all the laws of Rome applied to him. Again, God's providential hand in all of this. And he had a solemn oath to keep before Nero, even Nero himself, to protect Paul and to, uh, um, to keep him. Paul here was, by the providential hand of God, a Roman citizen from every last one of these known false accusations. He Unbelievably, it's an, it's, an, it's an amazing thing when you think about it because these accusations are false, and you know who knows it? Festus knows it. I want you to think of this for a moment. It's kind of like, I'm not trying to give lawyers a bad name, okay? But I watch a lot of lawyer stuff. And they are, for the most part, as just as Tertius was, just as many of these are, they weren't concerned about the truth. They're concerned about their client. They're concerned about whether their client gets off. Think of where our justice system has come, brethren. Instead of the truth, which we should be getting at the truth, they'd rather get the guy off with some technicality or lie about it completely. It's really quite stunning and crazy. And when that starts to all crumble, we're all in trouble, brethren, and we are. We are. It's amazing to watch that. But I want you to take note. Look at verse 10, because... These accusations, Festus knows they're false. He knows it. Look at verse 10. Look what it says there in verse 10. Then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong. And thou very well, what? Knowest. Festus knew it. He knew these men were liars. He knew that they had this, again, as I said earlier, they had this evil desire in their hearts. They hated God deep down in that place, and they hated his preacher. And brethren, they hate us too because of who Christ is. This is the thing that we have to, we have to consider in our day. We're living not too far from this, brethren. We're not very far away from this kind of thing taking place, which if you live in Canada, it already has. It's right up north of the border. Pastors being arrested. I can't remember who said it the other night. I think it was Wednesday evening at Bible study. They, they said something about somebody got arrested because they were praying. Who was that? Dean, was that you, brother, or was that Howard? They get arrested, brethren, because the government thinks they're praying. We are not too far away. Not far at all. Where you're going to be arrested. And this is why I believe again, over and over again. The Holy Ghost put this in here not once, not twice, not three times, five times to drive it home that we will be faithful as the, by the power and the Spirit of God that we will remain faithful in these very important days. In fact, he knew it, but Festus, 
is also a compromising politician to a large degree. He was better than Felix, but he was also a compromising politician. Hmm. You know, that used to be, what would we call that? That used to be not a good thing, right? Now it's tied together right and left. There's compromising. By, by the way, can I just steer for a moment? Hopefully none of you fell for the scam that was just hoisted on all of us Americans. Do you know the scam I'm talking about? The one I told Wendy about a month ago when this all started? Those Republicans, there is no way we're raising the debt ceiling. There is no way that's going to happen. Nope, we're fighting all the way. We're not going to have none of that. And what happens yesterday? Well, lo and behold, a compromise has been reached. It's all staged. It's all a game. They're playing with us, brethren. There is no doubt about it. That I, I told Wendy, it reminds me when I was back in the early days when I was driving for a company up in Minot. We were union. We were Teamsters up there. And every, every three years when our contract was up, the, the Teamster guy would fly in. And the president of the company would be there at the local union hall down there. And they're fighting like crazy. Oh, no, we want, we want $3 an hour. Nope, we'll give you $2.5 an hour. And they fight like this like crazy cats and dogs. And an amazing thing would happen. Five o'clock would hit, and all of us union people are going, ah, boy, our representative, he really put the screws to that company. And you look out the back window, and it's like, here's the, here's the union rep, here's the company rep, and they got their arm around each other, heading over to the lamplighter to have a drink together. This is what you have going on, brother. Don't be fooled by any of it. It's, it's a scam and a half. This was always going to take place. They're always going to plunge us into debt more. They're always going to destroy our country unless God sends a revival in this place, in the churches. Until that happens, that's what they're going to do. There is no question about it. They have reprobate minds. They can't think right. They can't think clearly. They can't think any of it. But brethren, think of this for a moment. I don't want to be the progenitor of doom. But you know what it is? It's reality. It's reality. And we talked about Rome this morning, the fall of Rome. Go look it up. Everything from the spending, everything from the welfare, everything from stealing from you and I as we work, everything, it's all the same. We're at the same stage as Rome was. It's a stunning thing to consider. That's why in this text and in, in, the, in the history of the church, brethren, there's never been a man of God who's trusted in any government or anything like that. No nation, nothing. You know who they trusted in? The one who's providentially moving in Paul's life to get him to Rome to preach the gospel. That's where our hope, that's where our trust has to be. Nations will come, nations will fall, but there's one who will always be there. He who is sovereign, ruling over all of it. He is the one you must trust in. He is the one you must place your faith in, not whether or not you get a tax cut or whether your taxes get reduced or whatever it is. It's about what God is doing. In fact, if you look there, as I said, he's a compromising politician because if you look at verse 9 there, he says towards the end of the, of the verse, it says, uh, well, look at verse 9 there. The Bible says, but Festus willing to do the Jews a pleasure. Does that sound familiar? You know who else said that exact same word? The, the same statement. He's trying to protect Paul, and yet he's trying to balance very carefully his political ways. Well, Felix said the same thing. 
Look over there, if you would, at chapter 24. Look at verse 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. It's the same thing. Their allegiance is to the political world, not to anything godly or anything Christ-like. And that's why, brethren, we must be very careful who we vote for, what we're voting for, amen? It's very, very, very important. So you see how this text envelops your whole life. See, this isn't Bill Clinton days where that's my public life and this is my private life. When you're a Christian, all of your life is public. All of it is centered around the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. You don't shut this compartment off. Men have a way of shutting compartments off, but not your Christian life. Your Christian life affects you at work. Your Christian life affects you when you leave this place. It affects you when you're at home. It affects everything you are. You can't be in the middle of the road because you know what happens to those who are in the middle of the road. They get run over. <laughs> Remember that? And just to remind us, again, as I said earlier, there's a faith, if you will, issue here. As Paul remembers the vision and Christ promising him that he will preach in Rome. Look at verse 11. Look what he says. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. So Paul, again, is he's going to give his life for what he believes What's the problem here? Why, why would he say that? I refuse not to die. I'll die if I've done something wrong. But again, he knows that Christ promised him he's going to be where? Is he in Rome yet? He's not in Rome yet. He's still here in Caesarea. And so he's, again, reminding himself and remembering that promise that you're going to be in Rome preaching. Well, you're not going to kill me here because I'm not in Rome yet, according to the words of Christ himself. Amen? So again, it's a faith thing. It's a trusting in what God told him, what Christ told him that he is indeed going to be in Rome. And so, again, he brings that to our attention. I like what Calvin said. God, who has appointed courts of law, also gives his people the liberty to use them lawfully. And this is what Paul, again, is doing. We've seen it over and over again as this thing has been repeated now for the fourth time. We've seen what God is doing in the life of Paul, preserving him, taking him, putting him exactly, precisely where he's going to have him go when he gets to Rome to preach the gospel, which, by the way, as he wrote the book of Romans, 36 times the word gospel is mentioned. 36 times. Think of that for a moment in that book where he got there and he's preaching to those who are there in Rome. So let's just close here this morning with just a couple of practical points. One major one, really, that I want us to consider. Considering the era that we live in, the times that we live in, we must consider that. By Paul's blameless life, he really did cause these people, both the Jews and the Gentiles, over and over again to face the reality. He, I mean, when you have a, a blameless man standing before you that can't even, not even one charge can be trumped against him. They can't find anything that's going to stick. Really what this does, it, 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 it brings to their minds an idea, their hearts, where the problem really lies. And it is deep down within their hearts. There's no question about that. The heart is where they hate Christ. The heart is where they resent the Father's Messiah. This is where it's all coming from. Again, I can take you to the text in the Bible. It tells us where it comes from, right? 
we speak the things that come from our heart. Murder comes from the heart. All these things the Bible says. This is where it's at. It's deep down in there. And Paul, as he is a righteous, holy man, blameless, standing before them, they are reminded, man, this guy is blameless. He caused them, really, to recognize that. Because, again, there was nothing, even after two years, of which they could accuse or blame him of. And, brethren, we must, in our day, take stock of that. We must set Christ apart, which is what Paul is. He's set apart. He's sanctified. He's set apart for the work of Christ, which is what he's doing. We must set apart what we say and what we think. What we think, brethren, is very important biblically. Having a biblical worldview. And then as we understand that, as the Spirit of God works in our hearts and in our minds, we must be bold, stand firm, confronting the secular world that we live in. In fact, the secularism that we are in, brethren, we haven't seen the bottom of it yet. And you keep asking yourself, don't you, like I do, how much more evil can it get? We haven't got to the bottom yet. I think this particular secularism that we're seeing is almost unheard of in world history. As I said before, even Putin and Xi Jinping won't touch the things and the evil things that America is up to. It's stunning. I think you're a girl. No, you're a boy. I'm going to be a boy. No, you're a girl. Think of that for a moment, what that does to the fabric of a nation. Destroys it completely. Again, we must indeed, as believers in the Bible, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must understand that we pray and ask God that we will indeed, like Paul, be blameless before the secular world. So that when Key stands up or when one of us stands up and we get accused of things, there's nothing that they can accuse us of. Nothing. It's an amazing thing, brethren. It is a high calling of God for the Christian to be as Paul is. If you go on trial, are they going to find an unholy thing against you? And this is what we see. Again, this is why the Holy Spirit over and over and over again is having us hear this and read it and study it again and again and again. Because he is laying to us the doctrinal points of being holy. Amen? Let me close with Howard's favorite verse. Well, I think it's one of his favorites. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. Listen to this, brethren. Listen to what Paul, who is standing before Caesar, he employs and implores to go to Caesar, Nero of all people, his court. Listen to what it says carefully. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your, what, bodies a living sacrifice. Listen, holy. Now that doesn't mean completely. It means H-O-L-Y. Holy, set apart, sanctified unto God. This is what we must be, brethren. Holy, he says. Acceptable unto God. We could all finish the text. For this is your reasonable service. We see so many things here in our text, learning from Paul. And brethren, as we see men continue to fall, 
I've seen a lot. Another one this week. <clears throat> Another one. As we see men who allegedly are to be leading the flock of God, the under-shepherds of God, and Christians, you yourselves, you want to live a blameless, holy, Christ-like life so that if you are ever brought up on false accusations, you can say what Paul said. They can prove none of these. Not one. Never, ever, not one. Let's pray together. Father, we, we certainly see your grace all over our text again this morning. For it is by your grace alone that Paul was able to stand blameless before the world. <laughs> Even a pagan governor knew that. Paul reminded him, you know, you know these things are false and untrue. And Father, we thank you again for the fourth time that the Holy Ghost had Luke record this for us, because indeed you are indeed driving home the importance of first your providence in our lives, your good and kind hand in our lives, and also the importance that we see again, and we'll see it again in Acts chapter 26 as he stands before King Agrippa, the importance of being blameless, the importance of being holy and sanctified and set apart unto the Lord God. And as our days continue, if they do, if you don't send a revival, a great awakening, if there's no Jonathan Edwards, no, none of those great men of old whom you raise up, we indeed will have to have our feet shod with the preparation and the readiness of the gospel. May we be blameless. May we always bring glory and honor to your holy name. Again, we've seen so many here just as of late, men who have fallen into grievous kinds of sins. And the world then, the secularists point their finger and say, see, look at these Christians. Look what they do. Father, may you again watch over us, protect our hearts and minds from these unholy things that we might indeed proclaim the gospel with great confidence and power. That the lost sheep, <laughs> that the lost sheep, they will indeed hear the Master's voice, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will indeed follow him. So, Father, again, we thank you for the, the true believers who are sitting amongst us. We pray today that your word has encouraged them and edified them to be bold and strong in the faith. Father, again, to trust in your power to trust in the power of the Spirit of God to guide and direct us. And Father, if there's a lost sheep here, maybe today will indeed be the day that they do hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will indeed be found by the great shepherd. They will indeed, as the Spirit regenerates them, their eyes will be open, their ears will be unstopped, their hearts will be replaced with flesh that they might understand and look up from whence cometh their salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Father, we pray all of these great things. And we again are reminded as we come shortly here now to the table, to the Lord's table. 
of these great truths. We thank you and pray these things in the name the Bible says that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will indeed confess to the glory of God. That name, as I like to say, as James wrote, when it is uttered and heard, even the demons shudder. That's power. Father, we pray in his name, in his glorious holy name, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.